we were using hydrophones, which are these underwater micro, microphones that we had in this stream that was running underneath. Um, you know, half, half of it was frozen. And so you have that sort of trickling water texture, but then you had this uh, cracking and breaking down of that icy surface and the drip of the surround. And, and it's hard not to listen to that with an eye to where the rhythms are and imagining what instrumentation you might bring to that and whether it might be something that you you want to incorporate sort of a, a synth-like drone to that or, or whether I'm thinking that those little glitchy out-of-time cracks and creaks of the ice are actually, you know, I can weave my guitar around that. That's right. I might have a story for you to today. I'm Matt Levinson, and it was Cameron Webb's music as seaworthy that first captured my imagination. His records create more of a feeling than anything else. Snatches of mournful guitar, recordings from his time in the field, waves of drone and static. It's a sound that's so rooted in this part of the world. But Cam's also a scientist, and it was making that connection that got me really intrigued. I was still in the world of science back then, although a totally different part of science. But he's not just a scientist. He's one of the stars of science communication. He's a clinical associate professor at Sydney University. He's principal hospital scientist at Westmead Hospital. And he's the go-to media guy on mosquitoes. Yes, those most vindictive of insects, which guarantees he's going to be on TV screens, radio airwaves, and wherever else, answering people's questions right through pretty much every summer. If you had a Venn diagram of Cam's work with music on one side, science on the other, I've always been really interested in the way they overlap. And it's something I've always really wanted to dig a bit deeper into. I've interviewed plenty of people over the years, but for whatever reason, I don't often ask all those kind of questions about the people that are in my own sort of network, people who I come into contact with. I guess that's um, probably the same for a lot of us. We're surrounded by great people making great things happen and we don't often dig into why or even sometimes what they've done along the way. With this podcast, I'm going to get to know some of these great people better. Cam, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for the invitation. You spent a lot of time, you know, when you were growing up, um, down on the south coast and in the west of Sydney, uh, from what from what I've been able to pick up on on the internet, and it's it's really interesting for someone who is so ubiquitous in the media, you know, year in year out talking about mozzies. There's not that much that goes into your background and how you got to where you are now. Can you tell me what your childhood was like? Yeah, it was a pretty good childhood. I grew up in Western Sydney around um, North Mead and went to school nearby, public education, co-ed school, which was uh, pretty great. I wasn't always the greatest of students, but uh, reasonably diligent. But I think the, the formative years where we were lucky enough to have a holiday house on the New South Wales south coast around a place called Burrell Lake, which is a bit south of Ulladulla. And, you know, we used to spend most, if not all, of the school holidays, plenty of weekends in between and those long weekends down there. And I think that that was something that, um, you know, created that connection to the environment, um, particularly, um, you know, once I was old enough and, and surfing a lot in those areas, you get a, a pretty strong connection to the environment. And then I think it's really that love of surfing where you then have to start thinking about the weather, and the tides and the wind and the rain and all these sort of things. And I really enjoyed that. And while I didn't acknowledge it at the time, I think that was something that kind of inspired me to want to sort of study environmental science and try to better understand how the world around us impacts um, ourselves and, and the animals that we study. I read at one point that you, as a kid, got the National Geographic at home. And I remember, I remember getting those, you know, yellow spined magazines in the mail. My grandma had a subscription for us when I was a kid. Was that, did that play a part as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, at the time though, they're just really cool books to look at and the pictures that you're looking at, uh, the different 
areas around the world you know they really spark an imagination uh you know in the same way that the uh, one of the things i do remember as a kid growing up doing those school assignments i don't know if these exist anymore but you used to go to the news agent and get a a little kind of uh, a folder or a pamphlet on a country or a subject topic or something like that and i guess that's a, a little bit like the um national geographics and you know i know they've become pretty iconic but things like the the coverages of whales and the flexi discs of whale songs you'd get or particularly the Mount St. Helens explosion volcanic explosion I remember um, just being completely engrossed by looking at those sort of photos and stuff in the articles like that so I was always more um, yeah I think I was probably more attracted to the sort of weird and wonderful things rather than um, you know um, you know what you might otherwise expect people be interested in the charismatic wildlife of Africa or something like that. Totally. And when they would do that in the National Geographic, they would have these massive fold-out pages that, you know, you could, could almost imagine that you were in there, right? Oh, as, as I remember just being fascinated with those sort of fold-outs of the magazine, like, what on earth is this? This is fantastic. And, and the images that were associated with those. So, yeah, you're, you're right, Matt, for sure. The other thing that I picked out when I was just trying to find out more about where you've come from, um, I actually... Um, dug up a piece that you worked on with me uh, like a decade and decade and a half ago when I was working on Cyclic Defrost, the music magazine. And at the time you reflected on growing up in the West and um, everyone basically just listening to In Excess. And this must have been getting into your teens, I guess, that you sort of starting to engage with music like that. What was it like, you know, in terms of that cultural life growing up? Yeah, it's hard to kind of think that it was anything other than just pretty smooth sailing for us all in many many regards kind of going to school and, and it's so interesting to look back on that now compared to you know my children and their education because back um you know during the the 80s going to school we all went to the school that was closest to where we lived we didn't really have much extended circle of friendships outside of the high school or perhaps our sporting teams and so we all kind of knew everyone pretty well and and i guess you know, music-wise, that was really kind of mainstream rock that dominated everything. And, you know, we might have been exposed to a bit of punk or something a bit unusual through surf videos and, and in particular. Um, and then, But then it was really finishing up high school was in – that was the real crossover and, uh, you know, Rat Cat was becoming pretty popular and we are on the cusp of the era of the big day out in Nirvana. So, um, yeah, that was the real real change then. It felt it – felt- huge didn't it? I I remember around that time and I must be a similar kind of era um getting uh, I was a skateboarder I was in the Blue Mountains so a long way away from the beach um but we would get you know Thrasher magazine and Transworld and all these skate mags and they would be talking about you know all this kind of music like Scar and this sort of thing where there was just no reference points in the stuff that I was hearing on the radio or whatever I didn't even know what those words meant and you know went out exploring for them um, how much of what you did later came from, I mean, because I know, and we'll talk about the music um, a bit down the track today, um, but a lot of your music started to come out of, you know, I mean, you were connecting to global music through mail order and, you know, actually calling out to get records. How much of it was that search to try and find the stuff that they were talking about in surf videos or that sort of thing? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Probably not... not- I mean, listening to surf videos and particularly some of the Australian surf videos had some pretty really interesting choices of bands, actually, when you think about it. And um, it sounds a bit unusual, but like one of the bands I discovered through those was the Warumpi Band, which is, you know, an incredible outfit. And to think of the time, um, you know, there was no exposure to that through any other media. And I guess, um, you know, that's just there's a bunch of bands like that that through surf videos was great. But I don't think it was really until that early 90s when you started to learn about mail order and the great record shops that were in the CBD and um, what else was available to you that you then start hunting down and reading and trying to explore and discover and, you know, talking to people and the word of mouth and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think that has a lot to do with that transition from that incredibly closed personal circle of high school and then when you're going to university of course which is you know um you know that transition back in those days was incredible to open up to a much wider group of people and their interests and influences 
you studied science at Sydney Uni, oh, sorry, Macquarie Uni, and then went on and did a PhD at Sydney. Was that always preordained? Were you always going to go and study science? No, not at all. And it's interesting, when I was in high school, I, I, I did do reasonably well academically, and um, I would have liked to have done a lot more creative subjects, but at the time, there was no real under, like the school just basically you know, pushed you or crowded you into doing the, the stock standard subjects that everyone who's, you know, so-called smart would do. And and even though I was always going to go to university, my, my first preference was to actually go into a sort of accountancy and nothing against accountants, but, um, you know, just at the at the 11th hour, I thought, I don't really want to do that. Why don't I, I really want to do something in the environment. And so that's why I switched around at the last minute and went to environmental science. And at the time, which would, that would have been 91, you know, the entry to environmental science was so low. Um, and even at the time, a few people said, Can I, why, are you going, why are you doing this? But um, turned out to be a good choice in the end. But, um, yeah, I think I just wanted to do something connected to the environment. By the time you got to your PhD, uh, sometimes referred to as an environmental science PhD, and sometimes it's a it's a medicine PhD, and I think that kind of goes to the interesting space that you occupy. You know, it's straddling both. It's it's you know the um, the study of insects, you know, mosquitoes, um, but it's also the public health impacts of um, of mosquitoes and you know them as vectors for disease. When you look back, was that you know, what, what led, you, led you down that specific path? Was it just a sort of a whole bunch of decisions along the way or was there a critical moment where you just latched onto that? Yeah, it was mostly dumb luck. And, and I think that, um, you know, for my colleagues and other people in this, in, in, when I talk to them in their sort of career path in science, that's actually what it comes down to a lot of times. So during my undergraduate degree, I sort of realised I'm, I'm not fantastic at the sort of stock standard rope learning and uh, doing exams and all that kind of stuff. But as soon as I started volunteering with other PhD students and learning about research and coming up with research questions and trying to answer those, that's when I really thought, oh, this is what I like doing. This is something that uh, I think I can do. And the honours program at Macquarie helped sort of introduce me to that. And so at the time, one of the projects I was doing was looking at how ant populations changed in sand dunes, coastal sand dunes that were being rehabilitated with different types of vegetation. And I really liked that. And I, I, I searched out PhD projects um, with something similar in mind and was really just lucky enough to fall on a, on a scholarship to look at how we can rehabilitate the wetlands around what would become the 2000 Olympic site at Sydney Olympic Park. And, and that was my introdu- introduction to mosquitoes. And even though I was I came into that field interested in understanding how mosquitoes changed with a changing environment, learning about the public health implications, but also the social sort of interaction people have with mosquitoes just broadens the, the sort of complexity of studying them. And that's kind of something that, you know, has maintained my fascination for, you know, over 20 years. There's, there's something about that. Uh, getting beyond the undergrad stuff of just doing courses and doing an exam at the end and maybe even you do some written essays or whatever, but you've, it's there's an element of rote learning to that, right? And then going into the bit where you're actually starting to do research. I remember um, in my honours year at uni and, you know, I did my honours in a, a fairly un- arcane area of geology and physics, so, you know, it's nothing to do with what I do now. But I remember that feeling of that year just feeling like, wow, this is what I always thought university was going to be and really feeling an excitement to it. I'm, in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't do a PhD, go on to do a PhD in that space. But um, the experience of doing the research and actually working on real projects is pretty gripping. Since then, you, you've I know you've done work in a lot of places, but you've kept on going back to that area around Sydney Olympic Park, Newington Armoury, um, both, you know, doing science and doing research and also for your music. What is it about that place that keeps bringing you back? Yeah, I think it's a, a space that, that represents how Sydney's changing and but at the same time also how the environment's changing under the influence of human activity. And so this is an area that pre-European arrival in, in Australia was mudflats and wetlands and then 
we, uh, you know, seawalls were created, the flows in and out of wetlands was disrupted. Uh, a large tract of land there has been used for things like quarries and um, the armory, um, the, the, the Newington Armory Depot, which much of it, you know, a lot of it is still there, but it was much more of an expansive area for a while there. And now it's kind of urban parkland and the residential population is skyrocketing and it's incredible that just over those couple of decades of working there you can see that transition and it's not just the change in the way that people interact with that space but also how the local authority has been managing those wetlands to make them more sustainable and you know reducing and managing some of the mosquito impacts those sort of um, adverse aspects of the environment um, that that people are trying to manage they've been able to do that quite successfully and integrate that really well in terms of how the rest of the landscape's being managed in a way we're dealing with these great shocks in our city at the moment and I guess most recently I mean we're, we're in Sydney it's been raining for seemingly months um, we've faced floods you know all year um, that kind of um, that role of thinking about the environment and being a bit more you know rather than sort of fearing what's what's to come with those floods actually starting to interact with the environment better understand the environment better and work with the environment to deal with some of these things feels like something that we've got to get a handle on doesn't it i mean yeah but but it's challenging right because there's uh, you know that stuff is really um ambiguous and it's you know there's no easy solutions down in that path is you know you've got to be open to the unknown in a way yeah you've, you've got to be adaptable and i think one of the biggest challenges is that we're we're sort of shackled to our past in a way as well because we we can't sort of change the environment in the way that we might like to because in many of the ways we've irreversibly changed the environment itself and so whether that be uh, disrupting water flows and catchments and you know getting rid of the the plants that used to grow so well in these areas and 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 I think that how we adapt the sort of green cities or the resilient cities um, into the future is going to have to be you know really paying attention to what's happening in the future and you know things like extreme weather events um, sea level rise heat waves all of these things is that we can't look at a point in time in history and plan around that we've got to be looking to the future and staying as flexible as we can i just read um, grace Carskin's amazing book about the colony and it's so interesting the way that she pitches you know she talks about Parramatta ultimately you know governor philip if he'd has had his way that would have been the capital of the city and in a way you know like however many years later we're getting to that point now where there's this just incredible amount of development around that area. When you walk through the Parramatta CBD, it is really a CBD now, um, you know, and, and that change has just been so dramatic. The impacts are just are, are just huge. And, and I can see how, um, you know, you were saying that interaction of human factors and social factors and environmental and government even, all those things kind of coalesce. Is that the stuff that kind of keeps you excited about yeah. being a scientist? Yeah, it does. And I, and I really, again, particularly studying mosquitoes where there's such a strong connection to community. So I could still be studying ants in wetlands or bushland areas and I would still be just as fascinated. And there would still be these dynamics that we would be talking about. Uh, in terms of how the landscape's changing and how we manage them. But with mosquitoes, there's that public health concern and, you know, time and time again we see resurgence of some of these mosquito-borne pathogens that we either think won't occur in and around the city or, or haven't occurred in Australia at all. And, you know, these are going to be something that we have to battle with into the future. But it's not just the environment. We then also have the social and cultural changes in our cities, and so, you know, the, you know, we we think about different communities and the way they respond to mosquitoes, what they know about mosquitoes, how they know to avoid mosquito-borne disease risk, or how they might consider that a risk compared to other environmental um, interactions, and even how those different communities interact with the. Um, the local environment, the natural environment? Do, is there a difference in the way they engage with that in terms of wanting to bushwalk, wanting to visit the wetlands, or do they perceive it as a threat because of the, you know, the occasional snake and spider that you might encounter and things like that? So I think it's really fascinating to think not only are we changing the physical environment, but, you know, how does that social and cultural environment 
change the way humans more generally interact with the environment. I think it's a really uh, fascinating thing to think about as well. Yeah, absolutely. We've, you know, there's this heightened sense of awareness of transmissible diseases at the moment. I mean, obviously we're in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, but, you know, we've, I, I know you've been dealing with and, and working on the Japanese encephalitis cases that we've seen in Sydney uh, recently, but, you know, there are others. There's Ross River, there's Barmer, um, Forest Virus, there's Dengue. Um, when we think, you know, my day job is working and trying to think about how the city should work better. When we're thinking about the risk of these things, um, and there, there does seem to be an increasing kind of risk and prevalence, maybe stemming from our increased interaction with some of these environments and change of change of the land use and what have you. What implications does it have for the way we should be thinking about where we live, how we live, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. It, it's mostly about how human population is interacting with the natural environment, but it's also how we're building our cities to respond to the increasing threats of a changing climate. And so whether that's heat waves or extreme weather events, the way we build and design our cities can have an influence on exposure to mosquito-borne disease and other emerging vector-borne pathogens as well. But my, my main area is mosquitoes. And so a lot of the work that I do for councils on the north coast of New South Wales is about how you integrate new housing developments into the local environment and how you can incorporate buffer zones between these environments which are both important ecological resources but unfortunately also sources of mosquitoes and mosquito-borne pathogens. But also in the cities, how do we conserve water how do we provide shade to mitigate the impacts of heat waves and don't use all of that water to create an opportunity for mosquitoes to breed? And, and while that might seem a really simplistic issue, it's not when you think about the possibility of exotic mosquitoes making their way to Australia that have the capacity to spread things like dengue or chikungunya or Zika virus. We don't have those diseases in New South Wales. And if we have the mosquitoes that come in with international travel, uh, they're then the kind of, you know, they're the, the tinder there that is ready to kind of start an outbreak of disease if a traveller or somebody else comes in carrying the virus. And so it, there's, there's sort of two ways to look at that, how we change the environment and how we're encroaching on the, the natural environment and, and changing our exposure to some of these um, diseases. Mosquitoes are one of those things like shark attacks that hold a kind of a gruesome, I mean, somewhat less gruesome, but still a kind of a, a real attraction for people. And for that reason the media are really interested in mosquitoes. There's something that are around us all the time. People are infuriated and frustrated by them. One of the first uh, kind of my job profiles I could find of you was from back in 2000 in the Daily Telegraph by Pat Carvelis. But there have been countless stories along the way. You know, when I was going through, there were just literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories. Do you get a bit edgy going into summer? or going to spring and some of the, the warmer months, just, you know, maybe like a reverse hibernation, getting all your work done in winter so that you can kind of deal with that onslaught as you come into the, the warmer months? Yeah, that's a great question. We, we, It's funny how you mark out the year and, and all of the different kind of milestones throughout the year where you know mosquito season is kind of coming and that uh, I always get a little bit uh, kind of anxious when we get those unusual hot weather that might occur in 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 say uh, September or, or August and and I think oh well here we go we're on our way and, and then as soon as Father's Day has rolled around I know that that's pretty much I've got to be on alert for mosquito season but I think one of the one of the things that I've learned in recent years is that it's getting warmer in spring it's getting warmer in autumn and again this relates to a changing climate you know we, we we mostly think about climate change, or at least people ask me about a changing climate and mosquitoes and thinking about the introduction of these exotic pathogens into, into Australia. But I think it's really the extension of the mosquito season. And so at the moment, while we mostly concentrate on, on summer or with a few weeks either side, you know, there's going to come a time soon, even here in Sydney, where I think I'm actually going to be doing field work you know, all the way from the beginning of spring through to the end of autumn because, um, you know, we're just it's not getting as cold as we, we might might have in the past. It's getting a bit warmer and, and mosquitoes are responding to that. So, um, Matt, I think my, my, my level of anxiety might only get a bit of a rest for a couple of months every year in the future. So you're in this crazy position where 
your work is peaking at exactly the same time as the demand for media interviews with you is peaking. And that takes a lot of work, right? Like you've got to prepare, you've got to, sh you know, at just pure logistics, get yourself to where the interview is going to be, um, deal with all the kind of stuff that happens around that. Why do you, why do you put yourself forward for this stuff? Because it can't, you know, a lot of researchers will say, you know, the thing they care about is getting published in high impact journals because that's the thing that's going to advance their career. Um, why do you keep putting yourself forward for that kind of stuff? <laughs> Look, I, I do enjoy it, um, but I also think part of my job, I'm, I'm not just a researcher, you know, part of my role, as I see it, is trying to stop Australians getting sick from mosquito bites. And there's lots of different ways that I can do that. And one of them is raising the awareness of mosquitoes and mosquito-borne disease in the community and sharing tips and tricks on how you can avoid mosquito bites. And... Even though we're all used to seeing those public health messages that get put out by the Department of Health and our local councils every summer, they tend to be fairly dry, it's very formal, and I think there's a, a really important role for us there to advocate for just interest in mosquitoes because I think if people are thinking more about mosquitoes than just sort of slapping them, maybe they're more open to these ideas about how they change behaviour to reduce mosquito problems around their home or when they're going away on camping trips or, or out in the environment. So in many ways, I just think that's just as important a part of my job as going out and doing the more formal research projects or mosquito monitoring programs. Some people are good at that and some people aren't that great. Um, and the fact that you get called back so often is a reflection of your ability to communicate really well. And I think that's why, um, you know, the chief scientist called you a superstar of science or something along those lines a few years ago. I went through one summer's batch of interviews you did and I found Sunrise, The Project, ABC News Breakfast, Sky, The Herald, The Daily Telly, Triple J with Dr. Carl, like just countless interviews what have you learned let's just get into the nuts and bolts of it what what have you learned about what the media like in a practical sense and how do you how do you do it well like how you know practically speaking what do you do to to make sure you do a good job yeah i think that i think what works best or what i found proves to be most popular is the that idea of news you can use and so you can be talking about the latest international research breakthroughs on mosquito-borne disease or mosquito biology, but being able to bring that back to what someone does as soon as they step out their front door wanting to stop being bitten by mosquitoes, I think that's where the real secret lies. And I think that connectivity between, you know, this really quite abstract research that's done in a laboratory on the other side of the world, what does that mean for, you know, everybody's life, I guess, is a really is something that I kind of think about and I think framing it in that is a is a really important um, uh, step. And I think in terms of the practicalities of doing media, I, I think, you know, when I speak to students and other people who are interested in science communication, I think one of the most important things of all is to understand how journalists do their job because at the end of the day, I want to try to make life as easy for them as well. And I think maybe... Maybe that's why they come back and talk to me um, as well as my knowledge. But, you know, having a bit of an understanding about how, you know, talking to somebody for the six o'clock news bulletin is going to be very different to doing talk back on ABC local radio and tailoring your preparation for that interview and the way you conduct yourself in that interview, I think is really important. When you're in a moment where it's really peaking, that's a whole other thing, right? like when Zika virus was happening or, you know, more recently, maybe even around the Japanese encephalitis, although it hasn't quite hit that sort of peak. What's it like when you're in the middle of just one of those intense moments of media demand? Yeah, it's really tough because often that coincides with me doing a lot of work. And so it's not unusual for me to be, you know, setting mosquito traps and running back to the car to do an interview where it's nice and quiet um, and then back out wrangling mosquitoes. But it's become a lot easier too. So it, it's not that long ago where it seems absurd for me to be doing an interview which either isn't in the studio or on a landline in a really quiet room. But now I'm doing interviews just on my phone while I'm setting traps, um, you know, via any number of kind of digital um, kind of connection apps and stuff on my phone to the studios and things like that. You know, Zoom, a whole bunch of different things, Matt. And so the flexibility there actually makes it a lot easier. It's tough for me when 
there's the expectation that um, I'm into the studio at, at whatever the media outlet is. That's a bit tough. But um, actually COVID has probably helped me a little bit because they're more accepting of me doing remote interviews and things like that. So it's about time management. Look, I also – I must say – I'm, I'm really lucky to have very supportive media and communication teams, both through the University of Sydney, New South Wales Health Pathology and, and New South Wales Health. And, and the media, particularly for New South Wales Health, have been really supportive in giving me a lot of latitude to self-manage a lot of these media inquiries. And I, and, I, and I understand that not a lot of other scientists might get that same freedom. And I, and I really appreciate that. But that makes it a lot easier for me to do as well. Because if I get a call at um, quarter past six on a Monday morning, I can do the interview at half past six and don't have to worry about negotiating the various approvals that I know um, a lot of other scientists and, and, and particularly involved in government authorities might have to um, sort of go through, go through that process. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and I completely agree with that sort of sense of the way the media has changed in the last couple of years. You know, you see it as a viewer, right? Like you're watching um, whether it's Sky or The Drum or, or you know, even just the nightly news, 7.30 or, or whatever else, you see into people's bedrooms and living rooms yeah, right. and offices. And, you know, I guess in your case, into some spot in the field where you're recording and Sometimes it might feel a bit less professional. It's definitely not as high definition video, but at the same time, you're getting this much richer view of the world and you know how people tick and who yeah. those people are. It's actually yeah. amazing. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and um, while I do stress, I can be a little bit of a perfectionist, and I do stress that um, uh, about getting a setting to do these remote videos. They're probably my least favorite. Is, is sort of doing a Zoom or a Skype interview, but mostly because. Uh, We've got horrible lighting in our house and, and where I'm based at Westmead Hospital isn't much better. So I stress about that, but you're right. It's um it's a great insight into where people are working and what they're doing. Cam, you played guitar in an indie band back in the 90s as you were studying at uni. Um, the band was called 1224 and if you're heading to Spotify or anywhere really on the internet to try and find it, you won't. I've spent quite a lot of time trying to find any recordings. Can you tell me what the band was like? What, what was happening back then? Yeah, it was really just a group of friends having a great time. So um, Dan, Simon uh, and Kim and I um, were playing. Yeah, so we played in, in 1224 for I think it probably would have been the best part of about five or six years. And we just had great fun playing shows around Sydney. Like this is a time that was so brilliant for live music in Sydney. I always felt there was a lot of camaraderie amongst a lot of these bands that we played with and um, you know bands like Soapstar Joe and, and Peabody but there were tons and tons of others and while there may have been a few other bands that were at a slightly higher sort of popularity um, uh, or, or success I guess to some extent um, we still played lots of shows and, and they, they were always great and you, you kind of uh, yeah, hanging out with with friends at places like the Hopeton and the the Annandale um, and the Lansdowne and the Sando at the time, and and I, I probably obviously none of us appreciated it at the time, but it's it's tough when you think about what live music is like in Sydney at the moment and what we had during the nineties. That was just phenomenal, and um, you know even the fact that we had these bands that were you know, international bands that were sort of touring through the suburb, the western suburbs of Sydney, northern suburbs, like you look back on those those days, you know, now the band that comes and plays one show at the Enmore, um, you know, 20 years ago they would have played three or four shows across Sydney in, in, in Parramatta and North Sydney and down at Cronulla as well as um, in the city. I love the idea that right now, you know, with everyone working from home and increasingly this kind of polycentric aspect to the city that maybe we'll start to see that kind of stuff kick back in because you're getting the density back around the city and a, and a bit more of a focus on um, sort of some sort of cultural venues. It must have been about that same time that you set up your label Steadicam. Was that, you know, part of that same sort of feeling or was it just, you know, you record something and you've just got to find a way to get it out? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I, so we started the label with no no intentions of it becoming a serious kind of business or label. But I think at the end of the day, we, we managed to put out the best part of maybe even a dozen seven-inch singles for various bands around Sydney and Australia and a few overseas. Um, I think we were releasing vinyl at the absolute um, bottom of the market for vinyl. It's funny to think about the resurgence of vinyl in recent years. And at the time, you know, we, we really kind of struggled to sell many records at all. But... Again, I think what I was really interested in at the time 
there are a lot of indie pop um, sort of bedroom record labels around the world and they thrived on mail order and um, handmade do-it-yourself sleeves, uh, recordings, um, and there was a, a very similar aesthetic that ran through a lot of these these labels around the world as well as Australia. And I think I, it's like any of these scenes, you you like being a part of it and you want to be an active participant in it. And I think that that really really drove that interest. And it's uh, you know, Matt, it's funny to think now about um, you know we're so quick to order music through Bandcamp or something like that, but it, it wasn't that long ago that I would have to go to the bank exchange some Australian currency for US currency, put it in an envelope and post it to North America so that someone in Grand Rapids would send me two seven inches in the mail. And so um, it, it seems is, quite quaint, doesn't it? It's amazing, you know, and I think it's gr- it's so great for kids who are getting into music now because there is just such easy access to the world's music. But at the same time, there was just such a sense of discovery about that and risk as well because the record might suck, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. But you have – look, one of the things which I probably miss the most at the moment, I know there are some – you know, I still buy a lot of, of records from smaller labels, but back in the 90s you would get your record. It would be unusual not to get a little handwritten note from the person who was dispatching the record. There would be a, a bunch of little mail order catalogs stuffed into the record and other little flyers and things like that. And And I think that that sense of connection to the people who are, you know – they're packing the records in their lounge room before they send them out as well. It's not, not being done in a big factory and dispatched in shrink wrap. And I think, you know, it's not just in music, but it's in, in all, all walks of life. We're trying to connect to other people. And I think that at the time that was a really great, um, you know, great, really great community to be sort of involved with and, and have connection with. It's funny you say that. Um, the first interview I did on this podcast was with a guy called Nick Robinson who has a sunglasses brand which he, you know, started with his son in Balmain. Um, But he really made a point when we were talking about, you know, when he sends it, there'll be a scribbled note on the box from him or one of his kids and he'll send a note and make sure it's clear to them that they can come back to, you know, replace parts or that sort of thing. And part of that is about the sustainability, but part of it is also about that connection and that feeling like, yeah, this is not a, a massive corporate, this is an independent venture. Your first few records at Seaworthy um, were done on the smell of an oily rag, you know, 20 bucks um, for blank tapes for for the first one, uh, you know, done an old reel-to-reel for the second one, um, map in hand. The latter map in hand was, you know, I mean, you just did 100 CDRs to take with you on tour to Sydney and Melbourne. Was that just about necessity being the mother of, of invention or, or was it actually something that you were aspiring to, that kind of culture of... DIY and moving quickly. Yeah, I think I think that do-it-yourself kind of aesthetic was um, both practical and and also pretty much in line with what I, I was doing. So the music of Seaworthy from from the days of um, playing in you know an indie rock band where you're wanting to do great greatly produced records and recordings and stuff like that to something that was a bit more low key and um, yeah a bit. Do it yourself. I didn't. I wasn't worried about a bit of tape hiss and poor quality. That was part of the aesthetic, and I think that it kind of remains that way. In that, it. I want. I want to make music or recordings that sort of sound worn and weathered and lived in, and and the lo-fi kind of recording techniques um, were, were great for that. And at the time, the, the whole CDR kind of um, stuff was great because you know a lot of us doing those sort of stuff, we couldn't really afford to go and buy five hundred getting 500 professionally pressed up CDs, let alone having the capacity to sell them. And, um, you know, being able to ha- take a, a couple of dozen records on tour to shows were, was always pretty great because a lot of people coming to the shows always wanted to buy records and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, you, you may always made more money from selling CDs than you did from uh, the ticket sales. It's funny, we've almost gone full circle on that, right? You've said that the Dirty Three was a big influence and especially Mick Turner's guitar playing. I just, you know, love his sound, you know, particularly the bits that are not the Dirty Three, Trend yeah. Brothers. Um, I was really gutted um, to discover Mess-esque and then realise I'd just missed a few um, dates that uh, they just course, played. Yeah. With that music, there's a real connection to Americana or, you know, the kind of edges of alt country, you know, I guess that sort of, you just said it, but 
before, that sort of lived in sort of feel to that music. Is that a musical place that connects with you? Yeah, it's really funny you should ask that because um, it was not at all. Like uh, at the time when I started making that music, you know, McTurner's guitar playing was a reference point as well as a, a few other artists. And it's funny how once those records started getting reviewed, you know, people would talk about that and even stuff like Neil Young and stuff, which as a, as a teenager growing up, there's no way on earth I would listen to Neil Young. Are you kidding me? And, and it's funny how now I, I reflect on his sort of, he has quickly become one of my favorite artists. And, and I go back to these albums that um, I would have, you know, turned my nose up at even thinking to listen to as a, as a teenager. Um, but yeah, that, I, I guess that. Maybe that's a sound that you grow into as well, right? Or, or at least you appreciate something in the music that you weren't looking for when you were younger. And I think maybe that's probably, um, yeah, more the case. But in terms of the music I make as, as, as Seaworthy, it's, it's almost about just making the music I want to listen to. And, and um, you know, sometimes it's actually the, the smaller interludes between other bands' songs and recordings that you're listening to. I really, you know... I'd really like to listen to that 30 seconds on loop for an hour, you know, and that's kind of the becomes a reference point for a lot of what Seaworthy's been doing. There's a, you know, can't quite put my finger on it. It's not quite loneliness. Um, it's a sense of melancholy, reflectiveness in the music and a very sort of intimate feeling, you know, an up close to the microphone kind of feeling to it. Where does that come from? Is that something that is, you know, like an emergent characteristic of the music or is, it, is that what you were looking for when you were saying you were looking for that music? Yeah, I think um, in one part it's a, it's a product. It's again, it's dumb luck. You know, it's a product of that recording approach that that I was doing at the time that gives that 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 sense. But I do like that immediacy and that you know, I'm sure there's a technical term for it, but that stick the mic up as close to the instrument as you can get it kind of um, uh, sense. And there's a few. Um, you know, records over the years that quite have that quality that I quite like. And I, but, but again, that, um, you know, it's, it's tough to say that you kind of like melancholic music, but the sad, the sad reality is I do. Um, and, and it, it lends itself to, to that music. It's not the, um, you know, bouncy, shiny, happy people kind of, um, you know, uh, or the avenue to create that kind of music, which is fine. That, that all of that music is out there. You can go and listen to it, but you know, not a seaworthy record is not necessarily what you're... Um, there's a time and a place. There's a time and a place for it, and maybe for some people that's every day, and that's completely fine. Um, but if you're looking for something a bit more reflective, then seaworthy is probably a better choice. We've had a couple of years of being locked up and, you know, like well predating that, but it was really amplified by that period. I've felt this real hunger to be out in nature. And, you know, for me, that's going out bushwalking and spending a bit of time that way. You, um, through your music, I mean, obviously through your work as well, but through your music, you know, you've had a few of these moments where you've gone out. I think the collaboration with Matt Rosner from Perth, the sound artist from Perth, um, you spent a bit of time out in the South Coast down um down uh, where was it? Yeah, down around just south of, of Aladulla, around uh, Termil and um, uh, Maru Lakes, yep. uh, and all within the uh, mostly the Murray National Park down there on the south coast that everyone would think about. And then just recently in uh, the Alpine regions around Mount Kosciuszko and, and those areas doing recordings. And those places are so distinct, you know. And so, I mean, I'd, I've just been reading John Blaze's book about, you know, going for a walk um, down from Kosciuszko down to the coast and retracing the old Bundian Way. And um, you get really get the feeling of travelling through just vastly distinct kind of areas on the way down there. And listening to both those records, Two Lakes and um, Snowmelt, yep. um, you, they are totally different records and you get that real sense of place in, in both of them. In a way, it almost, you know, the, the funny thing about John Blaze's book is, is he's sort of deeply talking to the kind of Indigenous communities who live in, in those places. And um, there's a sense of um, the, the value and the kind of connection to country that mm. um, those communities have. And I feel that with your music as well. Do you feel that, that connection to place and that it's hard to put into words, yeah. but um, is that something that's really important to you, capturing that and, and experiencing that as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's um, it's both the sort of feeling and the sounds, if if that doesn't sound too vague, because you 
as a scientist, or not, not necessarily as a scientist, but when I'm spending time in environments, they sound different. If you, if you stop and listen, um, it's not just about different types of birds, but, you know, the environment just sounds different and there's a different soundscape to it. And that brings with that, I think, a different mood and a feeling. And while maybe other musicians do bring their personal um, mood and feelings into music, I, I kind of um, do think that there's a sense of space and environment that you're recording in that you bring to that music as well. And that's not necessarily always when we're recording in um, a location in those areas or those regions, but when you're using the field recordings from that environment as the foundation for the music that you're making, it, you, you are instantly report, transported back to listening to that sound. And I think that that kind of really informs what you do. And I think it's really important to say that, you know, the work that I do and particularly the recordings and, and work with Matt Rosner is that the field recording component of it is, it, it's not something that augments the instrumentation. Um, it's really the foundation of the instrumentation and we're really informed by, um, you know, a lot of the sort of sounds and textures and things like that in those recordings that we make um, to kind of inspire how we're putting together, um, you know, the, the instrumentation components of that. When you're out in the wetlands recording like this, how much of it is, you know, how much of it is happening when you're out there and how much of it is happening when you're home? Yeah, it's a bit of both because I guess there's different different approaches here. So sometimes I'm not, I, I don't have my, my recorder is never far from my side. And, and these days with phones, I do a lot of field recording on my phone. Um, and so I'm going to be grabbing sounds at times that are really interesting and you know, it might be because I'm out in the wetlands when there's a, a, a blasting, um, you know, southerly blowing or something like that, or it's in the afternoon and there's a, a chorus of frogs that I've not heard before or they're particularly distinct or something like that. But when there's specific sort of, um, uh, you know, recording uh, trips that we're making into sort of specific areas, well then... Um, I guess we're, we're maybe sort of thinking about that a lot at the time that the, rec- the, the sounds in the space are being recorded. So to give, you, can kind of to give you an example, you know, recording some of the material for Snowmelt, we were using hydrophones, which are these underwater micro- microphones that we had in this stream that was running underneath. Um, you know, half, half of it was frozen. And so you have that sort of trickling water texture, but then you had this uh, cracking and breaking down of that icy surface and the drip of the surrounding and it's hard not to listen to that with an eye to where the rhythms are and imagining what instrumentation you might bring to that and whether it might be something that you you want to incorporate sort of a a synth like drone to that or or whether i'm thinking that those little glitchy out of time cracks and creaks of the ice are actually you know i can weave my guitar around that and so um yeah so it's a bit of a a bit both ways. There's a Venn diagram of the work that you do as a scientist and the work that you record and release as a musician and perform as a musician. And somewhere in between, there's this overlap of, you know, working in the field and the kind of evocative photography that you take and, and um, put out on your Instagram and, you know, and various other channels that kind of captures that sense. And inter- And when you are speaking as a, as a scientist, you're really direct and forthright and, and laconic and all that kind of stuff. And when you're releasing music, there's something really indirect and diffuse about it. And it's so interesting the way, like if you looked at one or the other, you would get a totally different perspective of who you are. Is that, does that tell the whole story, that, that, that spectrum that I've just laid out? Or is there is there more? Is there, are there even kind of other axes that we should know about? Well, I think that it's, I probably don't, don't get an opportunity to talk about the sort of artistic side of scientific research and the beauty of mosquitoes and things like that, perhaps, Matt. Um, but you're right. And I think that, um, at least for me, as a in terms of the musical output, you, you do, I, I don't want to have that stringent communication or that specific idea that you want passed on to somebody else you you you're sharing it you know you're sharing that experience with somebody else and you want them to bring to that what they're thinking about so even so even though i might put out a record that i'm 
I'm speaking to a particular type of environment or time of the year or something like that, that doesn't mean that when you put on that record, you can't be thinking about the own, your, the own, your own space that you like, whether it be natural or constructed. So I don't, uh, you know, that's completely, uh, people can own that space with that, that the music creates to them to themselves. Thank you so much for your time today. Before I wrap our conversation, I'm just going to put in front of you three really quick questions. And I really want you to think, just think off the top of your head. I don't want you to labor it too much. Um, First question, what's keeping you up right now? I'm exhausted after a super busy season um, full of extreme weather events and Japanese encephalitis virus. And so lots of work. I'm looking forward to the cold months of downtime and making more music, less mosquito wrangling. Who else should I be talking to? That's a great, that is a great question. No one in particular, but I would be perfect. I would love to hear from people who work in landscape architecture and how they're building our cities, which I know you're interested in, but I'd love to hear more about people like that. And what's giving you hope right now? I think that the pandemic has got people thinking about public health and I really hope they bring that, as, as tired as they are with the pandemic, I hope that they bring that with them into the future and, and have a greater appreciation for all of my colleagues and the work that we do trying to keep them safe from um, all of these kind of threats that are out in the environment and, and maybe sort of knocking on our door more into the future. Thanks so much, Cam. That is such a great way to finish Where's the best place for people to hear your music? Jump on Spotify and look for Seaworthy. Uh, Look for the 12K website, which is the wonderful label in New York that puts out our music. Um, But if you Google Cameron Webb Mosquito, you're probably going to find a whole bunch of music as well as uh, me talking and, and writing about mosquitoes. So that's the best place to find out about your science as well. Just hit Google. Yeah, that's right. There is endless information out there and and a huge amount of informative stuff um this was produced and hosted by me matt levinson thank you so much for listening and for all the great feedback about the previous three episodes with nick robinson lee tran lamb and kayleen milner if you're coming to this for the first time dig into it um they have fantastic stories and well worth um hearing please let me know what you think i'm on twitter or instagram or pretty much all the social channels um i'm at matt underscore levinson let me know what you think and if you like what you've heard i i might I might have a story for you.